Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. All right. So according to Becca, I am absolutely giddy about this episode's guest. I am happy to introduce a good friend of mine who has also served as a connector, a mentor, a sounding board, uh, and encouragement to me over the last uh, almost three years now. That is Dr. Paula Stone Williams, who is one of the um, planting co-pastors of um, Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado, among a myriad of other exciting roles that she will tell us all about in just a moment. Uh, So, Paula, thank you so much for joining us here on Permission to Be. It's good to be with you. Now, um, just to provide some context to that intro, it was, it'll be two, the three, no, it'll be three years ago this summer that I first had a phone conversation with Paula. I was still working at my previous church in the Phoenix area, knew I was on my way out for a myriad of reasons, many of which uh, had to do with the fact that um, I had come to a posture of affirmation, uh, full, open, kind of an affirming posture towards the LGBTQ community, which was not a compatible stance with the bylaws of the church I was working at. And a mutual friend of Paula and I had connected us. Uh, basically, he had told me that you know, there was just this, this one person, if, if, if I could know or connect with anyone in kind of this progressive, post-evangelical, open and affirming church conversation, it was Paula Stone Williams. And so uh, out of the blue one day, Paula called me and uh, kind of the rest is history. But, um, but she has been uh, a very, very important, if not the most important voice, uh, at least for sure, the probably the most important voice that I know in real life, uh, kind of in my uh, in my faith and ministry journey over the last three years. So, um, so no, it really is a, a, a honor and a privilege to get to interview Paula tonight. I remember that first conversation. Yeah, good. I had absolutely not only no idea who I was talking to, uh, but really what I was doing more broadly at the moment. So even then it was a, uh, you were a grounding voice. In, you know, uh, I, uh, I, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's work and particularly um, uh, Tipping Point, he talks about connectors and mavens. And in my previous life, I was both. And that's, I guess, fairly unusual to have somebody who's both. But I really... Uh, so many people are in their positions, their ministry positions, because I basically brokered the deal. And I remember when we were talking that day, feeling um, very sad that I no longer was in that position, because I thought, well, in my previous life, I would have had so many places I would have been uh, pointing you to or pointing people to you more accurately. But in my current life, um, like, yeah, I've got all these places that would want you, but nobody has any money. So uh, I remember that part of the conversation. 
sadly as do I. <laughs> but then a ripple effect from that those conversations is David in turn is doing the same and being a connector. And that is part of how permission to be is coming about this podcast because David is been a connector for me personally and he has um, been a huge encourager and pushing things into the water so we can see how your connectedness just rippled effect all over and that is a wonderful um there's this spiritual thing about it i can't describe but i knew that david and i would connect and and it's amazing so paula we always start um, our podcast by asking a question, which I think is going to be a little unique to you. Um, but if you could have someone play you um, in Hollywood, in the movies, when you make it big, which um, in our minds, you're already there. <laughs> so what would who or whom or multiple people would that be? So um, yeah, apparently you guys aren't the only ones who think I'm already there because I actually have signed what they call life rights, which sounds really Faustian, um, or a movie deal, which means that they're making a feature film about my life. And in the middle of, uh, I think they have a writer. We, we interviewed one writer. I think they have another that I'll be talking to before long. I'm meeting with one of the executive producers for dinner tomorrow night. I um, think they expect to be casting uh, probably by fall or winter shooting maybe next spring and then releasing probably about two years from now, maybe a little less than that. So, yeah, so uh, we've actually had conversations. So my attorney uh, for all the Hollywood stuff asked me um, who I wanted to have play me. And I said, yeah, Allison Janney. And he said, oh, actually, um, yeah, are you joking? Or, I mean, are you serious? I said, oh, oh well, I'm joking because I wouldn't. I mean, there's no way that's going to happen. And he said, oh, no, actually, uh, you would have reason to get your hopes up. Wow. Because she is, she likes to work. She likes a good challenge. Uh, she'll work for scale uh, if she likes a script. And it could be a lower budget film, an independent mm -hmm. film. Company that that uh, releases about a, a film a year. Um, most of their money they make uh, doing commercials. Um, so these are labors of love that they do. But he said, yeah, that's really possible. And then when I met with the executive producer, the one I'm meeting with tomorrow night, when I met with her a couple of weeks ago, uh, she said um, uh, Emma Thompson, and then she said somebody wow. else that I don't remember now. Uh, yeah, so. Um, so yeah, so when you ask me that question, it's um, it's actually a legitimate yeah. question. Of course, right. I don't get to decide. I don't do the casting. I mean, they're being very nice and involving me heavily in um, uh, in who the writer or writers are, and I'm thankful for that. But um, yeah, I, I worked in television for about 18 years, and I know enough about it to know that if you if you're a writer, a screenwriter, or if you are um, the person who's sold life rights, basically they don't really want to know what you think. Sure. <laughs> Things have gotten oh. I need to make a good story. You know, I, I did say to uh, my very first conversation with the producers, I said, I've worked in television long enough to know that, uh, that actually at some point or another, you'll piss off every single human being. I know um, everybody in my family, uh, me, 
um, all the people that I work with because because somebody uh, somewhere you, you will end up uh, writing a story that isn't exactly true and they'll not like the way they're portrayed. Mm. I get that. It works that way. I said, it's, you know, that's, you, you, you've got to make mm. a good story. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Emma Thompson. I did. I feel right. Emma Thompson. I, did have, I had uh, two conditions. One was, uh, I said, you can't have a man play me unless uh, he's been on hormones for six years. Uh, and anti-androgens, um, which I don't think you're going to find. I uh, said so. That's that's one. And the other one is, I said, I you you can't make my uh, former wife the antagonist because mm. she's been amazingly supportive. I said because mm. the church was in fact mm. the antagonist. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean Emma Thompson. Wow, but I, I you had me at Allison. I mean, Jenny, she's like my height. She has a lower voice. She's an amazing actor. I I mean that's I want absolutely. Yeah. That's inspired. I would not have told me I, it was a possibility. Right. I, I feel like we almost need to take a step back here, Paula, because uh, I obviously know your story uh, pretty well, mm-hmm. and 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 Becca does um, as well. But I suppose there's a chance uh, some of our listeners don't, and so uh, there were some there were some things uh, implicit to your story as we were talking about this this film that's going to that's being produced um that may not be obvious to the people listening and so that that's actually a good segue mm-hmm. to um to kind of how we uh kind of get started after our, our our fun little hollywood question uh which is really more the theme of the podcast this idea of um permission to be and and, and the question being what or who or what series of events or relationships or experiences gave you permission to be who you are uh, which is really often a question of uh what gave you permission to be who you are always already were um so you so that's a question it is it is it is which i know for you is 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 <laughs> well is, i could, uh, i mean really this could be the last question that you ask in the interview. um and if it is, that's fine i i knew from the time i was um three or four that i was transgender and yet I grew up in a fundamentalist family, so it was not something that was going to be spoken about. Plus, it was a Southern family, uh, and Southern families aren't known for the honest communication that takes place within the nuclear family unit. So I wasn't going to say boo to anybody. <laughs> I prayed every night that God would just change me. And of course, because I was a bright and white male, um, from a very young age, I had a sense of entitlement this sense that I should get what I want. And in fact, I always got what I want pretty much right through the time that I transitioned. I Things always turned out the way I wanted them to turn out. So, um, so I, you know, it, it didn't happen. I mean, obviously no gender fairy showed up uh, in her cerulean blue dress like I expected with her spreading out petticoats. And um, I ended up, you know, heading off to school and I, I I didn't, you know, a lot of transgender women will talk about how much they hated being a boy. And I always say, if you talk to one transgender person, you've talked to just one transgender person. No, I can't speak for anybody else. I did not hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. I, you know, went to college, got married, had kids, built a career. But as I said in my first TED Talk, the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually decisions have to be made. And so uh, for me... There were there were two steps to that first sense of a call. 
And the first was uh, actually reading Richard Rohr's uh, book, Falling Upward, which is uh, probably mm. my favorite book of his. I haven't read uh, The Universal yeah. Christ yet. But, um, and in that book, he talks about the first and the second half of life. And I've heard him say it's put it in, in a time frame. That's how the book was written. In the first half of life, you're yeah. working on uh, resume virtues. You're, you're building kingdoms, slaying dragons, amassing fortunes. The second half of life, you're working on eulogy issues. You, you uh, have fewer friends, but deeper friendships. You're no longer inside yourself or your sense of affirmation, but deep inside your own soul that you uh, are no longer nearly as concerned about being right as about being in relationship. And that if you feel called to something, uh, you might no longer have a choice in whether or not you accept that. I, I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to, uh, Jen Jepson, my co-pastor, and I were able to spend uh, a few days with him with just 30 other people. And Back in November, and I had, uh, I think, two or three long conversations with him, and I told him about that being the first step of my sense of call, and it moved me so much because he started crying. You know, he's everything he appears to be. So that was the first step of it. The second was... Uh, Related to television, actually, uh, Child of the Age. I was watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost. Uh, it's showrunners. Uh, one of them was Carlton Cuse, who's actually a Christian. And all of that Christian uh, typology was all throughout it. In fact, they had fun with mm-hmm. it. You yeah. know, at one point, the uh, like the father of the uh, of the protagonist of the show is called uh, Christian. Pretty yeah. on the nose. Yeah. But yeah. there comes a point in which the, the protagonist of the show in the final season, if you're a Lost fan, it's when he goes to the lighthouse, where Jack, the protagonist mm-hmm. of the show, realizes he's been called by the God figure to die. And I just started sobbing all night long because uh, I knew I'd been called. And I knew that was it. I, I, I was called. And I, I knew at that point what was likely to happen. And yet I'd had all these decades of always having life turn out the way I expected. So I thought I would be able to write the story of how it ended. To your plan, Mm -hmm. I told a couple of board members, and then the day came that I told my uh, hand-selected CEO who had followed me after I'd been with the ministry for, um, well, all together I was with it for 35 years. And uh, I said, well, well, you know, I've talked to these other two board members and to uh, one of our mutual friends in ministry. And so I'd suggest you talk to them. And instead, we went to the executive committee and within seven days, I was fired and had to tell uh, um, all the rest of the board, a lot of them, make it sure senior pastors on Christmas Eve, in between Christmas Eve services. Mm. And uh, then forced to tell all the other additional employers I had. And so none of that turned out the way I'd hoped. I had wanted to to make it a um, Mm. two-year deal that would be less painful to them. And uh, they didn't see it that way. So it was uh, a rather sobering uh, moment to realize that answering the call of God often means you lose everything. And yet... I I mean, I've heard you say, I've heard you tell, I I mean, I could tell the story you just told. I've heard heard you tell it enough times. And yet another thing uh, that I've also heard you add is that um, it was a life or death thing for you. That that if given the chance to do it again, even knowing what you know now, you'd make the same choice. It would be easy to make that choice now because my life has turned out so much better than it ever was before. I'd say... Maybe in the first two years afterwards, I wasn't as confident at that point. 
um, that it was in fact mm. worth it. And there are still moments I feel that way, particularly as it relates to family, uh, because you wrote a family narrative mm. and mm-hmm. um, that's Humpty Dumpty. You, you can't put those pieces back together again. You can create a new yeah. narrative, but I think all of us had to grieve the fact that the new narrative will not ever feel to the family as whole as the previous narrative. And it, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was gone this past weekend in New Hampshire, and it turned out my son was preaching for me here. And so my son was staying in the house and decided to bring his his kids and his wife, which then caused everybody to decide to stay here, which was not a part of the original plan. And so I finished speaking on Saturday, and I'm looking at Facebook, and there are pictures of my entire family except me uh, around the fire pit, um, at my house, the house I live in, and I wasn't there. And I I was really upset. And I ended up coming home early, actually. And the next day, I uh, I got in in time for dinner. And then Kathy and my former wife were still very close. And she was tired and decided to go to bed. And she, and she was staying at the house, too. And so we took another set of pictures that is minus her. And, um, you know, everybody's really happy in both pictures. But that is the new reality. And that's not really ever okay. I think Mm. I often say that the truth does set you free, and I've always believed that. Um, But then I also say, without any irony or any attempt to be cute, uh, the truth sets you free, but it's likely to make you miserable first. And um, this entire journey as a female has been one of having to face truths I did not want to face and being made miserable in the process, uh, you know, right up to the last week. And, you know, not just the family stuff, other things. Uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous way to live. It's not, a, uh, it's not a comfortable way to live, to actually believe that the truth will set you free. Most people say they believe that, they don't really believe it. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be clear, when, when, when you say that, you're not merely just talking about transitioning, you're talking All about living true. authentically. I believe all things that yeah. are true, insofar as we can discern anything uh, closely resembling objective truth. I think all things that are, in fact, true um, are um, important to our own growth and development. You know, I, I think ultimately, if you can truly believe in that, you'll say with Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the most remarkable uh, Secretary General the United Nations ever ever had, he uh, became Secretary General in 1952 and then died in a plane crash that probably was the work of terrorists in, I believe, 1960 or 61. The Soviets didn't like him because he was too uh, in cahoots with the Americans, and the Americans didn't like him because he was too friendly to the Soviets. I mean, he, he was in the, the worst of the Cold War. And he seemed to have a premonition of his death. And shortly before he died in his uh, journal, which became the book Markings, he said, For all that has been thanks for all that shall be yes i think that's what you're finally able to say when you actually believe the truth will set you free and you've trusted it long enough to be able to say that for all that has been thanks for all that Mm. shall be yes um you know just to be clear i'm not there yet would you want to be there though oh yeah would you want to have arrived there yeah I, i believe so you know it's like the old Monk, I can't think of um, which one it was, the church father who, who got down to where the, finally the only prayer that he prayed is, uh, God, what do you ask of me? Um, yeah, I, I would like to be able to live that openly and honestly. 
um, where I can see every part as um, blessing and turning me into the person I am and therefore can trust the future. You know, I, I had never really failed until I transitioned. And, you know, now one of my the poems that I memorized, which is hard to memorize, is Rilke's The Man Watching. It's hard because it's written in German and it doesn't translate well into English. But the ending of the, of the um, poem is, winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively, by constantly greater being. You know, it's the uh, Jacob story. Uh, Jacob asking the angel or God uh, for a blessing, and the blessing was, in fact, his wounding. It was being defeated. That's mm. what prepared him then finally to see his brother. Now, Paula, there are literally off the top of my head about six different ways that we could take the rest of this conversation that I think would be fascinating and encouraging and educational to the people listening to this podcast. But one that as a white, straight, cisgendered man uh, that has been uh, enlightening to me, educationally important to me, uh, uh, where you have spoken in is, is just the insights that you have gained as a, as a transgender woman who has lived much of your life as a man and not just any man, a, a very successful um, man. And now uh, just your day-to-day experiences um, as a woman and, and the ways that has opened your eyes to, um, I believe you said it, um, you said it a number of times, but I believe you said it in your first TED talk, um, just the sheer naivety uh, that a man has to the degree to which the world is tilted in his favor. Right. What I said in the TED Talk was there's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. And conversely, there's no way a woman can understand the full import of that. Because being a female is all she's ever known. Just as being a male is all he's ever known. And in my case, um, I think one of the things that is actually a blessing in my life is that uh, when I'm out just in the world, you know, at the restaurant or at a department store on the airplane, no one knows I'm transgender, which I, I was is still a surprise to me because I'm quite tall and I just thought I would be identified as such, but I just it never happens. What that means is that I then do get a full female experience, yeah. even though I know I'm not a cisgendered female, and I know I live in this liminal space between genders, to the world, I'm a female. And so the way the world treats me is um, so markedly different from the way it treated me as a male. And I feel like I will spend the rest of my life um, making sure people understand that. It's it's the main thing I speak on now. It's um, it's Since the TED Talk has had 1.9 million views, um, I've heard from women on all seven continents, yes, including Antarctica. Um, nice. for validating their experience. And I really, um, I, I love speaking on the subject because the guys will listen to me because most guys want to get it right. Most guys don't want to be jerks. They want to get it right. They just don't know. And, mm. uh, and they'll listen to me. So like, you know, one of the things I always say, they say, what can we do? And I said, well, you know, in business meetings, um, yeah, the first thing you can do is just be quiet. Just don't say anything. Be quiet. And they always chuckle. And I say, yeah, no, actually, I'm dead serious. Be quiet. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, because here's the deal. Men are basically taught throughout their lives that they're supposed to think out loud. And so you get in a business meeting and you just think out loud. And eventually, maybe a good idea comes to your mind. And 
And women are taught the opposite. You don't speak up publicly unless you know exactly what you're going to say and precisely the time frame in which you're going to be able to say it. And you've got uh -huh. concisely and clearly and strongly. And men interrupt women. Well, women do too. Women are interrupted by both men and women twice as often as men are interrupted. So I say to the guys, be quiet. Uh, don't say a word until every woman in the room has spoken. And then I add another one to it. Don't say a word until every introvert in the room has spoken. Mm. Now you can speak up. Uh, because it's those kind of fundamental changes, I think, that will cause men to understand. Oof. Do you, <laughs> I mean, yes to all of those things. Um, what do you think that looks like in reality for um, humanity as we are right now, specifically the Western um culture here in the u.s well it doesn't look so good i mean if you take a look at the one thing that's easy to measure a pay equity uh at the current rate that we're moving which is moving in the right direction but it's too slowly it'll be 100 years before we have uh pay equity 78 cents in the dollar is where it is now 64 cents in the dollar if you're african-american 59 cents if you're native american 54 cents if you're hispanic american uh, you know, that that's just one area that you can measure easily. Yeah. The looking at the things you can't measure, and uh, it, it's it's more significant. All the percentages are, are ugly. I mean, even Wikipedia gets into the act. 83% of Wikipedia biographies are biographies about men. Uh, mm. <laughs> for Wikipedia are, guess what, white guys. That, sorry, David. That just is one thing that as my mind has just become open to the phenomenon instead of just sitting in my um, straight white female being just taking in everything that's been told to me my whole life. And once I start digging into things and opening my perspective, I'm just baffled by how I did not realize that the reason so many things, the rules, the laws, the Bible is the way it is, is because it was written from a male perspective. Yeah, it's it's purely a patriarchal society that we live in, and uh, any society on earth primarily is patriarchal. Uh, you don't actually have a society like the one that was shown at the beginning of Wonder Woman. <laughs> and so you're constantly being faced with things that you never were faced with before. I, I just... Uh, ended a, a contract with a particular company and uh, ended it for good reason. Um, and the uh, and I explained why I was ending it. And I explained some philosophical reasons for ending it. And then I also said, and I'm also ending the contract um, because of uh, your tardiness in getting back to people. And the response I got back was, um, I understand why you would want to do this. And yes, we'll let you out of your contract. And I'm sorry you feel we didn't serve you well. That's the kind of stuff that just sends me ballistic now. I mean, I wrote just to be perfectly clear, I don't feel anyway. You were contacted by Jean Doe on February 4th at 10.52 a.m. You responded to her with a forum response at 3.52 p.m. on February 11th. A seven-day uh. initial response and with a forum letter to something that... Uh, potentially could have cost me $7,000. Um, that's not feeling anyway. That is not doing your job. And then finally, I got a straight up apology yes. saying, yes, that was not Ugh. appropriate. But you know how many times I had somebody say to me as a male, I'm sorry you feel this way about it? I had that happen to me exactly zero 
time as a male. <laughs> Which is so crazy because that's all I've heard my whole right. life is I'm sorry you feel this yeah, way. Yeah, it's like, well, it's not like, my mistake. It's your mistake just because you happen to uh, to be the wrong gender in a patriarchal world. Uh, yes. <laughs> David, thoughts? No, I was going to let that <laughs> one. I was going to let that one right <laughs> out. nothing you can say now. I have nothing to add. Um, what I was going to do, though, is, is, is I, I don't want to leave this conversation. Um, I, I kind of want to ho- hold it in one hand and then the other. Um, you know, Paula, obviously, you know, you were very, very much involved uh, at a very high level, high capacity in the world of uh, churches, church speaking, church planting uh, prior to your transition. And then now, um, it you know things have obviously shifted, but you've planted a new church. Uh, you are involved in a number of organizations, both church and parachurch, that are working with open and affirming, affirming to the LGBTQ community, um, active uh, in doing uh, inclusivity work uh, when it comes to um, the sort of equity we're talking about between men and women, uh, anti-racism work, things like that. Um, so, so within one hand, everything you just named about um, the realities in our culture when it comes to patriarchy and um, and equity, how does that look in your, and really it's our, um, you know, everyone in this conversation, how does that look mm-hmm. in our current church planting, church sustainability, mm-hmm. um, church conversation? You know, I think this is a tough one. Um, I remember being involved in a conversation about church planting maybe a year and a half ago, and we were talking about the difficulty of the race issues. And it was um, a couple of the organizations were there that are involved in uh, bringing together post-evangelical churches, which by that basically mean mainline Protestant theology, but evangelical methodology. and. Uh, a church planting organization that works within that field. And we, we had ground to a stop because the conversation became purely about race. And uh, Brian McLaren said, you know, let's just kind of remember that the mainline church has been working on this for 75 years and they still can't get it right. Uh, there's such a sense of enthusiasm. Uh, and also I think a sense of, uh, courageous bravery in the people who have stepped into this post-evangelical world uh, that it's like, okay, we've kind of solved the LGBTQ stuff in relatively short order. Uh, maybe we can solve the racial stuff as well. Uh, and we can't. Uh, we can't. You know, and you mentioned that I, uh, I've done this work on gender equity and, and anti-racism. I've not done, um, I don't think, any work on anti-racism. I think when it comes to racism, I really still think like a white guy. Uh, and yet I'm also a, um, I'm also a, a, well, at least an armchair anthropologist, sociologist, uh, well, a lot of training in that area too, right through the doctoral level. And I know that um, you, you don't change, uh, you don't turn a giant ship around in the water overnight. You've got to take small incremental steps. And I, I think that, um, that there's a potential of getting bogged down in this work that we're doing in uh, the post-evangelical world if we think that we have got to solve 
the racism issue uh, and the intersectionality issue overnight um, because we can't. We'll, we'll, we'll be stuck dead in the water, and the one thing we could do uh, will be done. You know, I, I find it interesting. Um, there's a statistic in the book, The Feminist Fight Club, that says if you had true gender equity, uh, you would increase uh, uh, racial equity by at least 11%. I, I'm not positive of that mm. number, but I think it's right. Um, so to some degree, then you get racial equity for free. I, I, that, I think, is something we can take on. I think we can take on mm-hmm. uh, the gender equity issue. And I do trust that if we had true gender equity, we would have far fewer problems uh, with race. We would not get rid of them, but we would have far fewer problems with race. Mm-hmm. That's something I can wrap my arms around. I do know that the white folk, we've all got to work together and we've got to figure out our own stuff. Um, to become anti-racist before we really even, uh, I think, have earned a right to speak to the um, the communities of people of color. We have to acknowledge some of our colonialism. Well, I, I think that's true. Uh, like one of the things we're looking at at Left Hand is um, taking a certain percentage of our income and using it uh, basically for reparations. Uh, you know, we've talked about using it mm, probably yeah. for... Uh, uh, post-secondary education, college-level education for people of color, um, because I think we feel like uh, a financial answer is at least a first step. It's very clear that we developed an entire yeah. uh, nation, a rather wealthy nation, on the backs of the slave population. So uh, to pay a, a willing price for that seems like a good starting place. I guess the bigger concern right now is so many are afraid to do anything for fear of not doing it right, that they're just paralyzed. And I mm-hmm. think that's not a good way to proceed. I think you proceed, mm-hmm. you make a bunch yeah. of mistakes in the process. Um, and you ask um, for forgiveness for those mistakes, but I don't think we just sit still. That's what Austin Channing Brown was um, just here in Charlotte this past weekend she said those exact same words you try and if you mess up you make a mistake and you keep moving forward yeah i think so and i think that um you know jonathan Haidt in his book the righteous mind says that we are not primarily a rational species we're primarily an intuitive and emotional species and we mm-hmm. uh, we make the decisions we make based on anything other than the mind and then we create these rational descriptions uh, or these rational arguments to to go along with the stuff that we've already decided. So when then do we actually change our minds about something? Uh, We will only actually take in new information adequate to change our minds if that information comes to us in a non-threatening way. So debates don't get anything done. Uh, They haven't since the Enlightenment. Uh, Angry conversations uh, are good for one's emotions. And as a psychotherapist, I love it when I can see my clients be able to express their anger. It's not going to change the people on the other side. And I was talking to Monique Morris, who spoke at Ted Women when Jonathan and I spoke. She lives in the Bay Area and has done a lot of work on getting girls who've been in the juvenile detention system back into public schools where there's zero expulsion policy. And she's done some great work and gotten the city of Dayton, Ohio, to to take on a, a zero um, policy of making kids leave for mistakes they make. 
but I was asking her, I said, you know, we get it all wrong. Um, how, how do we change it? And she said, well, uh, nobody changes anything if you don't lead with love. Mm. I think she's right. Yeah. I think that kind of agrees with what Austin is saying too. Wait, it just, it doesn't work. You're right. The arguments on Facebook, <laughs> the 50 comments that people going back and forth, it doesn't, nothing's being No, nothing at all. I mean, it's, and it's a fundamental difference for uh, when it comes to our culture wars right now. It, it's a fundamental difference in how we see life. We as a species have uh, three different moral standards, and they are tend to be exclusive uh, to one another. So the entire Western world has a moral standard of the individual, the rights of the individual. There's no higher moral good than to look out for the best interest of the individual. That's the entire Western world. Uh, it's um, been that way certainly since the Renaissance and absolutely since the Enlightenment and definitely in the postmodern environment. But there are two other moral standards on earth. Uh, one is the tribe, that there's no higher moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe, which is a moral standard that's common to Africa, uh, common to other developing nations, uh, to Indonesia, the parts of Central and South America. And then there's a third moral standard which does not have a specific uh, geographic component to it. Uh, it has a religious component to it, and not one specific religion, but all religions. The third moral standard, the first is the rights of the individual. The second moral standard is the uh, the tribe, uh, protect the veracity of the tribe. And the third moral standard is uh, that there's no higher moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. And the commonality of the third one is that's all forms of fundamentalism. So whether you're talking about uh, fundamentalist mm -hmm. Islam or Judaism or Christianity or the non-Abrahamic religions, um, that is the moral standard. And so you have right at the core then of where we have our greatest passion. All of our greatest passions are around the, the moral codes we live by. And we actually have uh, segments of the population living by all three. And in the United States, that first group, the rights of the individual, has had such power since really the time of uh, our constitution that the fundamentalists and evangelicals are pretty angry because to them it was the demands of the gods that was the most important. And since the 1980s and the creation of the moral majority, they realized, well, we're just going to get political power and force that onto people. And so that's why you then have the moral divide that we have. And I think part of that is justified in that, yep, sure enough, the rest of us whose moral standard of the rights of the individual never did really respect those whose moral standard is the demands of the gods. It, and, and if that's that's like a lot of information very fast, uh, Jonathan Haidt is a moral psychologist at the University of Virginia. It's in his book, The Righteous Mind. Sticking with this kind of post-evangelical um, church world that we find ourselves in, I was on a podcast in the fall, and my dialogue partner was hopeful, but less optimistic than I was, that this sort of admittedly esoteric uh, post-evangelical space. So I, I liked the way you defined it succinctly, you know, kind of like this mainline theology with 
an evangelical methodology or aesthetic. Um, the, my dialogue partner was was hopeful that there was a sustainable, viable um, need or trajectory for for this space, but he was pessimistic, and, and I fully admitted, kind of, kind of in holding the other position, that to some degree I had staked my my calling, my livelihood on its sustainability, and so so there was certainly an you know, I, I had a personal vested interest in seeing uh, kind of this post-evangelical space thrive and survive uh, as more than just an ethos, but actually, you know, kind of have some institutional grounding. Um, but, but, but as someone who has worked at the highest levels of the more traditional evangelical space and is now taking a very prominent leadership role in this post-evangelical space, um, how would you assess its health in 2019? You know, I had a graduate professor who, in remarking about the denomination I was a part of, which was not an official denomination, it was a collection of 7,000, 6,000 churches, uh, when asked about the the sustainability of that movement of churches, uh, he said, well, if it, didn't, if it didn't exist, we'd have to create it. And I actually believe the same thing about the post-evangelical world. The mainline Protestant world has a corporate system that pretty much guarantees its own death. So when, in fact, you have central power, uh, you're going to get what the United Methodist Church got. This is how it's going to work. Uh, the denomination I was a part of was the fastest-growing large denomination of the 1990s with 18.5% growth. Why? because there was no central power. There was no particular person in charge. There were three seminaries and 34 colleges and one magazine. And, um, and, and, and yet that particular denomination was more effective at church planting than pretty much anybody else, uh, more effective at make, uh, creating megachurches than pretty much anybody else. And it, uh, it was because where there was no hierarchy, there is a predisposition toward those who get things done. Um, to put it in any language, there's a predisposition toward threes and eights. And, um, and that is what we have in the post-evangelical world. It's, it's not a world of uh, credentials and hierarchy and the Peter Principle at work. It's a world of independent entrepreneurial thinkers who always will be independent and always will be entrepreneurial. And they will gather together once they realize the need for it. And I think we've lost some momentum from where we were a couple of years ago. I am a little bit concerned that we're not moving as quickly in that area as we need to move. But then I also believe um, what my professor said, if it didn't exist, we'd have to create it. So maybe the particular forms we've created aren't the ones that are going to take off. But I have no question that the uh, evangelical world with its uh, local church autonomy, its free church ideal, its uh, independent congregations, that world is going to become LGBTQ affirming. And that world is also going to move away from the idea of a God who... Uh, fries his children because he just feels like it and because they haven't exactly said the right words at the right time. And once that world does, that world is going to do exactly what they've done now 
they are going to unite and get things done. And I'd like to think those of us who are on the cutting edge right now, the 40 or 50 churches that are a part of that, are going to be the ones who are getting it done. But as I take a look around over the last year, uh, it seems like um, we might be getting stuck on thinking we have to get it done perfectly. You know, one of the differences between patriarchal societies and non-patriarchal is the same as the difference in how we raise our children. Uh, we raise boys to be confident. We raise girls to be competent. So that's why girls do very well in the public school system, because it's a system that rewards competence. But they don't do well in the corporate world, because in the corporate world, what is rewarded is confidence. It's not the best idea. It's the, um, uh, it's the loudest idea or the idea presented by the most powerful person that gets the job done. And so there are a lot of experts now who say we need to teach our daughters to be uh, confident, not competent, because girls won't present an idea in the corporate setting because they think it has to be 100% correct. And so they see their, their wonderful idea that's dropped mm -hmm. by the wayside because they didn't have the courage to present it because it wasn't perfect enough. While a guy presents a half-baked idea, yeah. uh, up and might get something done. Well, I think mm -hmm. it would be good if uh, those of us in that post-evangelical world were willing to just have the confidence to do our half-baked things. And if we don't get it exactly right, it's okay. In the post-evangelical world, I still feel like we're some of those in leadership. Are, you're still bumping against that old mindset of having everything polished. And it's causing a lack of... Um, I feel like some of the momentum may be slowing down a little bit just because some of those cis white males who are in that post-evangelical world are still having a hard time taking those neural pathways that have been ingrained in them since childhood and letting them, the unpolished, come forward. I think they're frightened and they've been frightened in the silence because they, they understand that they're privileged. And I believe that they have, they have rightfully decided to examine themselves and in the process have decided to remain silent when I think their instincts are telling them a direction to go that actually would open the playing field for everyone, that actually might accomplish some of the things that, um, that the non-agentic or non-patriarchal world would like to accomplish as well. Because what happens then in that world is kind of the same thing that happens often in the mainline world, which is that um, there ends up being endless discussion and no one is willing to act. And it is those white guys yeah. on the sideline that actually would if they felt empowered to and they no longer feel empowered to. I, I think it's a real problem. I don't know how we mm. solve it. One of the ways to solve it, I think, is to create non-patriarchal systems, non-hierarchical systems, non-vertical systems, but we're a long mm -hmm. way from doing that very effectively too. I mean, overall in a wide spectrum, I kind of understand, but I guess in my mind, I get hung up on the fact of why wouldn't we be closer in the post-evangelical world to that? I mean, is it just the same general answer? You know what I'm saying? I, I, maybe there's an assumption or, or a presentation that the post-evangelical world is more evolved. But if you think about, you know, what, what makes us post-evangelical, we're all coming out of the evangelical, we're all paying a huge price for coming out as LGBTQ affirming. 
So that tells you right away that the people in this world are courageous people willing to question the way it's been done before. So now they've questioned appropriately the LGBTQ stuff and they've come down on the right side of that. I think history will show. Yeah. But then it also means they'll continue to question. And so when they're challenged on race issues, um, it also gives them pause. And on that, they don't have the same confidence they had on LGBTQ issues. And that's where I see things right now completely bogging down. And I'm, I'm comfortable in just this one area speaking to that. But beyond that, I don't know that I know anything. But I do know okay. that if they had the courage just to focus on gender equity and admit that mm-hmm. they don't understand what to do with the other stuff and maybe try something like Austin Channing Brown said, and if it doesn't work, try something else. But we know what works with gender equity. And if we had gender equity, we would we would at least increase by 11% the race issue all by itself. That's a path that's clear. Which is a huge jump. So let's take it. There is a question that we have asked uh, every one of our guests so far. Uh, and it's been really interesting to see the diversity of answers because, um, you know, we've interviewed people both in kind of this post-evangelical space, uh, people who I suppose would probably still identify in a mainline space, and some people who uh, probably wouldn't be comfortable with either label. And that question uh, concerns the nature of salvation. Uh, It is often kind of taken for granted in Christian spaces, especially evangelical spaces, that, you know, we are kind of all about salvation. You you even um, kind of inferred it earlier in the interview, kind of talking about, uh, you know, praying the right words at the right time, you know, is a certain conception of salvation that... Uh, at least the people here in this interview were raised with. Uh, And so it's been really interesting, really fascinating, often encouraging even to hear the ways that salvation is articulated um, kind of in this uh, deconstructed, transitioned, post-evangelical space. And so so for you today in this moment, uh, what does the word salvation mean to you? Uh, Not much. Uh, I believe it's a word that's been ruined in the same way the phrase sovereignty of God has been ruined, which, by the way, never shows up in the New Testament. Um, I, none of my children had to be saved to be my children. They didn't have to do anything to be my children, and there was nothing they could do that would make them not my children. And, you know, I mean, during their teen years, they certainly tried, but, you know, it, there's nothing that they could do that would cause me to not love them. So you will not hear me use that term hardly ever because I think it has, um, it has come out of a, a terrible theology that misunderstands why Jesus came to earth. I think Jesus came to earth to show solidarity with us in our suffering, to show us what it means to be fully human, um, and not to uh, coerce or convince God uh, to punish Jesus instead, because otherwise God was going to have to punish us. I mean, I know so many LGBTQ people who have been completely and utterly rejected by their families forever because they think that's what God would do. And you know, now most of my life has spent outside the evangelical world. I, I was talking, um, I was speaking in London two weeks ago, and I ended up in a long conversation with a large group of corporate CEOs about um, 
evangelicalism and its exclusionary view of God. And they just, they, um, they have no capacity to understand it because it just makes no common sense. They're all parents and it just makes no common sense. And you have to have lived within the bubble of that, uh, of that particular siloed world to for that to make any kind of sense at all god is love god cannot not love i was so devastated as a child knowing that i was supposed to save people and when my friends wouldn't accept quote-unquote salvation i it wrecked me i would never do it over again i never did it i i intuitively Mm. knew yeah i believe from fairly early in childhood, that I did not believe the evangelical fundamentalist party line. A long time to find the courage to walk away from it, but it just didn't make any sense. And when something doesn't make common sense, uh, there's a reason. Yeah, I was at a a networking meeting uh, with other youth pastors in the Charlotte area yesterday, and I will fully admit, I don't know why I keep going to this thing. I got invited because I think they were just looking up churches in the Charlotte area and um, saw that I was the youth pastor and so sent me an email. And I, the, there's this one Presbyterian guy who, who we have a little common cause. They have female pastors. Uh, and that's about where the commonality ends. And everything else is just um, kind of super, just kind of super conservative evangelical, kind of what we've been talking about. But I, I honestly, if I, I don't know, I've enjoyed the camaraderie, the encouragement, and and it's always helpful to to kind of see um, what other kids in Charlotte are experiencing. It gives me context for what I'm doing. But uh, there's a new guy there, kind of a new director for it, and um, he kind of a, he he's a self-described uh, evangelist, like 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 not a pastor, um, not a theologian not uh, i mean really specifically evangelist that's the title that he claims and he made that very explicit in the meeting and um it was the first time you know i've been kind of hanging out with them for three or four months now and it's the first time i'm kind of like yeah i think this might be the point of impasse because because when he's framing the relationship with god purely around um purely around this kind of heaven hell lost saved uh dynamic that you just described paula that's the point where where it becomes increasingly difficult for me to find some common ground to to kind of maintain it's fundamentally different it's a transactional view of religion it is it is very much a capitalistic Mm. american way of looking at things i i um have a transaction with you and then I, I get the personal goods that, uh, that I wear, and which in this case is the chance to go to heaven. So it's, um, you know, I'm now yep. a one with the cool kids who are all wearing uh, the same brand. And mm-hmm. that is not transformational. Yep. That is not teaching you what Jesus said in his very last public speech ever. He said, you know, the 613 laws, it all comes down to three, loving God, loving your neighbor and loving yourself. That's not transactional. Mm, That's transformational. Well, I would love to end right there because you just Mm -hmm. tied penal substitution to capitalism. And so that's, that's, that's kind of a, a a damning pairing that I want to leave our listeners with. 
And so as we close, Paula, how can people um, uh, connect with you on social media, follow your work? What, uh, what websites, Twitter handles, what, what should people uh, plug into their search engines? Uh, it's uh, Paula Stone Williams on uh, Facebook and paulastonewilliams.com and um, uh, Paula S. Williams, uh, the number two, the numeral two. Perfect. Uh, at, uh, so. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for just having this conversation, spending the, right, I don't know when people are listening, but this is evening right now. And it, um, y'all, I, I wish you the privilege of hearing Paula in person. And if she comes to your city, you need to go and you need to listen and sit with open eyes and open ears because Paula's voice is what needs to be projected into this world. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.